Joining me now, the co-authors of The Jerusalem Files, Discover the Astonishing Journey of the Menorah, our old friend, Corey and Maul, and our new friend, friend Christopher Morford. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. Congratulations on the book. Good to be here. Thank, thank you. you so much. I mean, this had to have been a labor. Just reading through the book, this was this was a journey to get to a point where we can print, you know, where something's in print. There was a lot of traveling. There's a lot of seeing things in this. It seems like this was a pretty extensive project. Yeah, I think if we uh, if we would have known up front, uh, <laughs> possibly we wouldn't have <laughs> wouldn't have done it. But uh, it's uh, let's say you know we'll be glad it's over and that it that it's there in print. It's uh, you know to 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 the point that it's almost uh, unbelievable. Giving birth, yeah. Now, Chris, I want to start with you um, because we've talked to Corey in quite a bit here on the podcast. We haven't ta- we haven't talked to you, but. Um, can you tell us just sort of what got you here? How did you get to the point where you're where you're publishing a book about the menorah and Oak Island? I mean, what, hmm. what what got you to this point? What's the Chris Morford origin story? Oh gosh, um, I'll try to make this concise. <laughs> um, well, I, I was on this uh, Facebook page that my uh, friend of mine had started. You know, it had to do with ancient wisdom and things like that. And uh, I started posting stuff. And, um, well, the Chris Dona was on there also. And he sort of took a liking to my posts. And we started a friendship. Chris Dona was, of course, uh, featured on the Curse of Oak Island uh, several times. Uh, his main focus was a lot of... Uh, you know, astrological and astronomical stuff and bringing the stars down to the island, uh, which I think he was very good at. Um, he's no longer with us, sadly. Um, but uh, we developed a friendship, and he mentioned that he was on the show, and I sort of remembered Old Island from Leonard Nimoy's In Search Of. You know, that was the last I had heard of it. You know, now we're up to William Shatner on the, <laughs> on the show. We're going to have the whole crew of Star Trek soon. But um, so uh, he started telling me his theories and I, I sent him back some stuff. And long story short, he, he said, you really need to send this into the show, uh, which I did and uh, thought I would never hear back again. But a week later, I got a call uh, from production and then from Doug Crowell. And uh, they liked what I had to say enough to uh, to fly me out there. Um, I had developed this theory about Nicholas Poussin and the uh, Shakespeare funerary plaque and other things and uh, Masons. Um, I've been a Mason for some 25 years now. Um, so I was uh, already into those sort of things, Rosicrucianism and, and Martinism and uh, Theosophy. So uh, that's kind of my background. And um, they brought me on the show. And I, we found that a lot of what I had to say overlapped with uh, Corian's wonderful theories. And they encouraged us to, to, to work together. And we did. And we really hit it off. And I think it's been uh, quite magical ever since. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of how I got here. So this actually came together from the show. Yeah, they paired us up. 
you know, I, th I think they made sure we were on together. They saw that we had uh, a lot of similar points, a lot of overlap. Uh, Corian was uh, uh, and is, uh, you know, quite the uh, the expert on all things Poussin and Renly Chateau, and uh, he's got a wonderful website dedicated to that. I know he he's well, he could speak for himself, but for over 20 years he's been immersed in this, and so uh, what an honor it was to be able to work with him, and. Uh, Luckily, we were, you know, we we able to fill in the blanks on some of each other's stuff, and we were kind of like a yin and yang there. We came together really well, and uh, we continue to work together really well. And uh, I'm excited. I mean, we're already digging up the stuff for book two, and uh, wow, it's going to be bigger and better. <laughs> Corey, and jump in yeah. there. I I know we've talked about this before, but just for people who mm -hmm. haven't listened to our past interviews, just kind of give us sort of the nickel version of how you got to the point where you you and Chris met and, and started this journey here? Um, I had an interest into uh, into mysteries uh, since I was a kid. So, you know, my, my dad dragged me into every church, castle, and museum in France when I was young. Um, and, you know, um, th this turned into... Uh, a fascination for the mystery of Rand Chateau, you know, the, the backstory of uh, uh, the Da Vinci Code uh, that I think most people know, uh, the notion that perhaps, you know, Jesus was married to uh, Mary Magdalene, perhaps they had children and a long line of descendants. Um, developed a website there, got into touch with a number of people, uh, started a podcast um, and then was approached uh, by the BBC to join a documentary um, and, you know, became uh, uh, bigger all the time until uh, uh, in 2021, I was approached by, no, sorry, I think it was 2019, I was approached by uh, a production assistant uh, from the United States uh, who asked if I uh, could um, say something about Nicolas Poussin, the, the, the French painter that uh, Chris just referenced, uh, for a certain documentary television show, which turned out to be... Uh, uh, the Curse of Oak Island. So had a video session uh, with pretty much the whole team on a Friday night. Uh, we got along really well. Um, uh, <laughs> I told them I didn't see a connection between Poussin and uh, uh, Oak Island at the time, but they asked me to to develop something anyway and and uh, uh, and and give my thoughts, which was cool. So the, so two hours later there was a ticket, and Sunday morning I landed in Halifax. I think I met. Chris on Monday, the next Monday morning. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we both did war rooms uh, that week, uh, and we uh, that was a really cool thing. We ended up uh, doing one war room together at the end of the week, which was uh, I think televised in the, in season seven. That's the one where we uh, uh, um, discovered uh, what we now call the Arcadia Stone on the Eye of the Swamp. Uh, which was a cool moment, and then I think it was was Rick, who who really encouraged us to uh, you know to 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 keep teaming up, to keep collaborating, uh, and and to you know to to develop uh, our body of research together, and that's what we've done. I think we we sort of researched until almost sort of like twenty four seven for uh, wow. for the best of like two years. Um, where, you know, we have the time difference. So uh, and I think we've made uh, really efficient use of that. Uh, and then uh, after, after that time, we, we had sort of a 
quite a concise timeline and pretty good idea about what we thought, you know, had happened on a well on Oak Island, but uh, maybe even more important around Oak Island and and in Europe at the time and in the Middle East. And uh, we thought uh, we we need to write this write this down. You know, that it was on my fiftieth birthday that my girlfriend said, you know, you need you need to give yourself you know your own book for a present. You need to start writing a book because all this all this all these facts and numbers and years and names in your you know, it's gonna it's gonna drive you mental uh, in the end uh, so you, you 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 need to to write this down so you know talk to chris and uh and and you know we decided to do this together uh, because we're so complementary uh as researchers uh, as a team you know we come from such different angles and we we really felt that uh, we could make something uh, much better together than you know each of us uh, could have done uh, you know on our own, uh, and and I think that really materialized. You know, couldn't be more pleased with uh, with what's there today. So you've you've For sure. you've um, talked about a little bit on the show some of the things, but I, and I don't know how I want to phrase this question. So if if it's confusing a question, let me know, and I'll try it again. What was the idea for those people who haven't watched the show up until maybe the last couple of years? What was the idea around which you guys said, yeah, I'm going to dedicate my time into this? You mentioned Pusan already. We know about that. Um, and, and we've discussed it. Was that the germ? Was that the seed that started this? And at what point did you guys decide, oh, yeah, we're on to something here? Yeah. It was. I, I think Poussin was the uh, was the trigger. Um, so I remember quite quite soon after we'd returned home after uh, the recordings for season seven, uh, you know, Chris and I really jumped in and and started uh, you know researching more into Poussin, and we found this this. I mean, there's a monument in England uh, that has a, a copy of Shepherds of Arcadia, his most famous painting uh, in stone. It's called the Shutborough Monument. It's quite well known. It has a, a famous mystery associated uh, with it uh, to do with a, a letter code. But we found out there's another monument uh, in the UK that also has a, uh, a copy of Shepherds of Arcadia in stone. And uh, it, it's completely unknown. It's very few people know that this exists, and it turned out to be, you know, a monument to a, a one of the lesser-known English prime ministers. Um, so uh, we um, figured out uh, where it was and uh, and and had a look at it, and and, and <laughs> to our astonishment, you know, we we found references references on this monument. Um, to, to two things, one to the menorah, and the other uh, and the other thing uh, was to uh, Versailles, the uh, uh, the palace of uh, Louis XIV uh, in France, um, and that's the moment that we that we really started to think, you know, we're onto something here, and we need to uh, uh, we need to uh, to push on and uh, and see what this is all about because the the reference, you know, to to the menorah on that uh, on that monument. Uh, and um, uh, and to first eye was was so clear um, that that it was impossible to ignore. Yeah, I think that's the key point there that we weren't setting out looking for the ark or the you know or the menorah or anything, but the clues 
led us there. You know, what we uncovered led us to that that treasure. So we had no preconceived notions about what we were looking for. We started digging and uh, it kind of drew us to it. Okay. Absolutely. Before I get into questions that pertain directly to the book and to the, the ideas in the book, I just want... <laughs> I just want to point out something that you guys uh, that you guys talk about here. And uh, for instance, you write in the very beginning of the book, you're talking about um, how Daniel McGinnis uh, hadn't climbed into his canoe to go hunting on the island in 1975. You th- you notice things about you talk about uh, or so the story goes. You write things like, like it's almost impossible to distinguish the truth from fiction when it comes to things like the origin story of Oak Island and stuff like that. And I just, as somebody who spent a lot of time trying to find the closest thing to the truth about how the money pit was actually discovered, for two researchers like you, I wonder how maddening that was for you. Was it as equally as frustrating for you as it was for me? to find all of these different stories have morphed so much over time. And, and I wonder if that is sort of a little microcosm of how all of these things tend to go sometimes. Right. <laughs> yeah. So maddening understatement there. <laughs> was the, was the, the basic background on the island itself and that whole history of it difficult to kind of cut through? And was it, um, it's not really a focus of your book, but it's, it's something that I felt we kind of had a, you know, had a similar path in here. <laughs> well, I think, you know, we, we try to approach it the other way around. Um, so much on or around Oak Island is based on lore, on hearsay, on, you know, on legendary tales there's very little fact, you know, even something like the 90 foot stone, um, you know, nobody knows if it ever existed. Well, it probably existed, but we you know whatever code was on there, you know, nobody knows. Um, uh, the code we have today was reproduced, uh, reproduced by someone uh, that saw it and then uh, redrew it from memory. You know, how, how strong is that in terms of evidence? You know, that's not the sort of case file that we wanted to build in the book. Um, so we, 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 we built it, uh, the other way around. I mean, th- there's very few things on Oak Island about the mystery of Oak Island that you can establish for fact. Um, I think, you know, for us, Nolan's cross is fact. Um, you know, see, seen enough of it, uh, looked at it, uh, enough, you know, you have the alignments uh, with Europe, you know, we're pretty sure that, that Nolan's cross is a real thing. Uh, the Stone Road on Oak Island is a real thing. The datings on Oak Island is a real thing that that converge around, you know, the 1200s, around, you know, the uh, the 1500s, and then you go to like the the 18th, 19th century area. Um, so, so in the end, on Oak Island, that's all you, all you can go by. And then there's, you know, the the detailed history of Nova Scotia, um, the dealings of uh, some. Uh, um, uh, famous persons like, uh, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, 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 the Duc d'Anville, uh, um, the dealings of uh, Louis XIV of France, Louis XV of France. Um, but in the end, I mean, we, we met on, on Oak Island 
started to research, found the beginning of a trail in England, in an overgrown garden near London, and then started to build the trail from there, basically going where the evidence uh, led us, exactly like uh, like right. Chris said, which eventually led us back to Oak Island, um, which which is sort of uh, is sort of funny. And 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 yes, you're completely right. A lot of it uh, uh, is is circumstantial, uh, to say at best. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, we are we are 100% convinced that that something uh, very peculiar uh, happened uh, on that island, um, of which we can see a few traces. One of them being Nolan's Cross, and the other one uh, being uh, the Stone Road, and probably the Money Pit, if it exists. Yes. Chris, can you add anything on that? Like, uh, especially those those certain things, Nolan's Cross, uh, the Stone Road. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But these these things, your research, uh, probably at, not Nolan's Cross, but certainly the Stone Road. I think you guys were working on this before that ever even became a thing, right? I mean, before that became something people knew about. Yeah. Um, if you're working from home on a computer on this uh, is one thing and you do doubt yourself but I have to say once you are on the island and you visit these stones and you walk walk the paths from stone to stone um, trying out the alignments that to, that you believe are there um, then there's no doubt in your mind you know uh, these were placed there by somebody for a specific purpose and that purpose was not to propagate a hoax on somebody. Um, if you were going to do that, um, they could have just thrown the stones up uh, any old way. And But the uh, all the alignments that are there and the evidence that we have seen, uh, it, it's overwhelming um, that this is something that would have been beyond uh, Mr. Nolan, not to put him his intelligence down in any way. But if you're just a surveyor who's setting out to uh, together a hoax for somebody, um, I don't believe that that's what's happened here. He would not have taken all these calculations into consideration, I don't believe. And, um, you know, once you're there, you become a believer, I think. I, I also think when it comes to Fred Nolan, what I know about Fred Nolan, I mean, he was working on finding a treasure I don't think he really, yes. he wasn't really concerned about France. <laughs> or, no. Right. No, I mean, no. <laughs> I don't think the thought would ever come into his mind that he would align this with the palace of Versailles. That just was not that. I mean, those kind of theories and those kind of things that, I mean, that came along later when we had uh, access to things like, you know, Google maps and all that kind of stuff. I mean, when he was working in that, he wasn't thinking along those lines. They were thinking of a Spanish treasure perhaps. Yeah, I guess. So. Well, there's a couple of frogs in the uh, in the swamp, but uh, I'm not sure. Even. <laughs> All right, so it's a very bad joke. Apologies. Yeah. <laughs> Again, the book is the Jerusalem Files: Discovering the Astonishing Secret Journey of the Menorah. I want you to do something for my listeners. Tell us what is the menorah? What your menorah? Everybody knows what a menorah is, but just give them the background on this item that seems to be the focal point in the at the end of the day of what you guys are looking at and writing about here okay um 
the book of Exodus, the biblical book of Exodus, describes how God personally instructed Moses to make a menorah. Um, he had to um, find a block uh, of uh, one talent, which I think is 50 kilos of gold, uh, to fashion a, a lampstand out of it. Uh, that is precisely described in the Bible, uh, which uh, consisted of um, a tripod, a central stem, and seven arms. So three arms to the left, uh, three arms to the right, and uh, one in the middle. Um, and this thing was called the menorah. The menorah had a central place in worshipping uh, uh, the God from the Bible. Um, uh, if you know, um, the uh, the Israelites uh, traveled through the desert uh, for, what is it, 40 years, carrying uh, what was called a tabernacle, which was basically uh, a big tent um, that housed a number of sacred artifacts. One of them was the Ark of the Covenant, uh, so like the size of a small office desk uh, that had two cherubs on top of it, um, and which was supposedly a device through which you could talk to God. And next to it would be the menorah uh, to light the room. Uh, and the menorah later ended up in the first temple. So uh, the first temple in Jerusalem that was built by uh, the legendary uh, King Solomon uh, and it is one of the, the most sacred items, uh, I guess, in the history of mankind. Okay, so the menorah itself, if, uh, if I'm following this correctly, and again, uh, my brain doesn't comprehend all this stuff very well, but uh, if I'm following this correctly, ends up according to the theories, as one of these items that comes into the possession of the Templars. Yes. And so uh, I, I'm not, again, I don't want to give away too much of the book, but I guess I would give this response as a, I'm going to be a real skeptic here. Okay. And um, because I am one, uh, but, uh, but let me just, let me just do, say this for a second, a skeptic, who is listening to this, reading a book like this, or any of these other kinds related to the Templars and what they did, especially you, because there are some tenets with the Templars, right? Like all the Templar theories posit essentially the same thing. They retrieved the treasures from beneath the temple in Jerusalem and uh, squirrel squirreled them away back to Europe uh, to safety and then hid them somewhere. Right. So there has been a lot of theories that come out through that and a lot of arms that reach from that. Um, but I think the basic skeptic would say, you know, guys, we're, we're talking about things that are fiction, the Ark of the covenant. I mean, the book of Exodus, these are, these are fables, right? These are, things that really didn't exist. They're allegories. There was no magic box that could level armies. There was no, uh, you know, um, uh, things like uh, sacred this, that. I mean, these are allegories. These are stories that all religions have. Um, all of them have these sacred things that have been lost over the years. What makes these different to you? And do you think, <laughs> am, am I asking a, a reasonable question here? I think before we can get into this, we have to sort of accept that these things really existed, right? Absolutely. I believe these objects were real. You can subtract the supernatural supernatural qualities of them, uh, but they were real artifacts. Uh, 
you can look to the Arch of Titus, for example, to see the menorah, um, and it's in the records there. So I believe these objects were real. You can believe or not believe what they are said to be able to do with them, the powers inherent in them. Uh, but I believe the, you know, the, the relics, there's uh, quite a lot of history behind it. Yeah, they're actually quite well recorded. So what we did for, for the book is we, we went to all the original sources that we could get and could find. And we checked for ourselves, you know, how is it recorded? How is it described? And then, you know, it's crystal clear that both the Ark of the Covenant and the menorah existed. Um, and th th there are some tantalizing uh, uh, accounts. For example, there was a, uh, a Roman historian, uh, Josephus, who was a defected Jewish priest who was a friend of Vespasian, who was the, the son of the Emperor Titus, um, who was, uh, you know, ramsacking Jerusalem in the year 70. Uh, Josephus, uh, in his book, The War of the Jews, he, he literally describes how uh, uh, a Jew called Phineas uh, takes uh, the menorah out of uh, the secret storage uh, and hands it over to the Romans, uh, where 10 years later it appears on, like Chris says, on the Ark of Titus, which is like a, uh, uh, a triumphal ark uh, in uh, in Rome, on which is depicted, uh, you know, the, the legions coming back uh, um, uh, from Jerusalem uh, with the holy treasures. Um, these things are real. They've been depicted. They've they've been described in multiple accounts because after the year 80, the Romans put this in what they called the Temple of Peace, which was um, uh, a uh, well, an early museum in which they displayed the items that they had. And <laughs> uh, hear hear me out when I say this phrase: items that they had liberated uh, from their uh, 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 possessors uh, to show to the world. Um, right. So the menorah definitely uh, uh, existed, um, and then we also try to establish: Did the Templars indeed, you know, dig dig this thing up? Uh, uh, when did they do this? How did they do this? And did they record uh, anything of it? And then, um, you know, you you don't find literal references to, hey, it's a Sunday afternoon, two o'clock. I just dug up the menorah, and now I'm going to have a coffee with uh, with Romulus here in uh, Jerusalem. Um, but but they there's various letters, for example, that are exchanged between high dignitaries um, in the in the Roman Catholic Church and in the in the in the in the Templar leadership that reference, uh, you know, a source of light uh, that's uh, all of a sudden uh, appearing, uh, you know, a new a new light we can shine on things um, that appear to reference something like the menorah. So I guess you, you can make the case in the end that that's uh, conjecture, you know, it's circumstantial, but if you add everything up and, you know, in the back of the book, you'll find a very, very detailed timeline uh, of everything we've uh, um, um, unearthed, um, then th then it becomes, you know, a more and more uh, a logical and believable story because we've also established, you know, how did they take this to France? Where did they store this? How did they record this? Um, and 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 then it becomes, you know, a a breathtaking story. There was a reason they took it to France. There was a reason it had to move to North America later. Um, and uh, in the end, I guess you need to believe the conclusions uh, 
uh, we've drawn. Uh, yeah. it's, it's funny, I saw one of the first reviews for the book today uh, by someone on, I think it was on Goodreads, uh, um, uh, an early reader of the book who, uh, who said, you know, there's, there's, there's hard evidence for most of the conclusions. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, yes, we, we draw a conclusion, but there's, there's solid, substantiated documents, records, original French, uh, you know, old Latin texts. Um, you know, we're not, we try, we've tried not to jump to conclusions. I mean, it's very easy to get carried away, you know, these, oh, sure. in these subjects. But, but I think we've substantiated to the best of our abilities, and, and I think the conclusions uh, will speak for themselves. There was a menorah. It was dug up by the Knights Templar. It was moved to France, and it was eventually moved to North America. And I think just to sort of answer my own question, too, again, like Chris said, whether it doesn't matter whether or not you feel uh, that the Ark of the Covenant could do what it says it can do in the book of Exodus. And it doesn't matter if the Templars actually or the Romans or whoever you had documented here actually had the right Ark of the Covenant, right? We, we don't know. They might have had something they thought was the Ark. None of that matters. In the long term, what they did is what Sorry. matters, right? What, what they did with those things that they perceived to be the Ark of the Covenant is what the story is all about. It's not about those other things. It doesn't matter what you or I believe. It's a lot to do with what they believed. Getting to the heart of that and why they did what they did. And the, Why did they cherish these objects? And the really cool thing about the stuff that you guys present in the book is that, you know, most of the times when people talk about things like religious objects, um, they use religious texts. But as you're saying there, Corey, and I think, and I think this is sort of a microcosm of a lot of things that you write about in the book, you're not just using religious text to say where these things were and who had them and you're not ascribing any supernatural things to them, you're actually documenting things from people that don't have anything to do with whether or not it's religious or not. They don't, it doesn't really matter to them. It's just sort of they know where this is and they can see this. Am I making sense with that? I mean, that you guys are following a trail here that doesn't really have anything to do with religion or the supernatural. No, not at all. I mean, we, we, were, we were just following, following our research um and 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 trying to to make sense of of the clues i'm, I'm going to tell you one one other story um if you've ever been to london anyone who's listening who's ever been to london uh, has probably visited westminster abbey you know the magnificent church where uh king charles iii was crowned a few months ago um westminster abbey is the 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 pantheon of Britain, and uh, meaning that you know everybody who's ever meant something is buried in Westminster Abbey. This is the you know the 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 biggest indoor cemetery uh, in England. It's it's rather awesome. You know, everywhere you look, there's monuments uh, uh, and and you know um, uh, uh, sculptures, uh, uh, one even more beautiful than the other. One of the most famous places in Westminster Abbey is Poets' Corner. Poets' Corner is reserved for everybody who meant anything. Uh, in English literature, there's Charles Dickens, there's Jane right. Austen, there's uh, mm -hmm. Lewis Carroll, um, uh, there's the uh, the statue of William Shakespeare. In the middle of Poets' Corner, there's a monument to a gentleman that nobody knows. His name is John Roberts. He has a very big memorial. Um, he was not a poet. He wasn't famous for anything. 
Um, nobody appeared to know him. Uh, still, you know, to place Robert's monument in Westminster Abbey, they had to break up the tomb of Geoffrey Chaucer. Chaucer, who is considered the father of English literature, literally had his arms chopped off to make room for the tomb of John Roberts, the man that no one knows. Um, and Nobody's so, up so, in arms about that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, we found out that you know John Roberts was the secretary to this British Prime Minister, on whose memorial we found these you know incredibly clear references to the menorah and to Versailles. Uh, and 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 that's how this puzzle just you know developed around us. Um, so all the time, you know, you have to ask yourself, why did they why did they do this? Why was an honor so big bestowed on someone nobody knows? I mean, you really have to be royalty or Stephen Hawking you know, to get a burial in uh, yeah uh, in Westminster Abbey. Um, you know, Roberts was known to, if, if anything. He was known to be a very difficult man who, uh, you know, who, who had petty fights about very small political things. Right. Uh, but there was a world behind him um, that that is way more interesting. That we are convinced, uh, you know, is, is is the route for 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 him being buried there. Um, and so, and that that's what what I really love about this book is that we bring forward a number of characters no one's ever heard of, but that worked in the shadows, that's you know, right. to to. To construct and deconstruct, I guess you know one of the biggest mysteries uh, uh, in uh, in present history, um, having everything to do with Oak Island that you never hear about on the show. That's the one thing about going into Westminster Abbey that blew me away. I mean, I I I, I, I when I was whatever nineteen years old and went there. I mean, Lawrence Olivier is buried there. <laughs> I mean, it's not, yeah. you know, it's not, you, it's you figured crazy. it was Kings, right? It's like Chaucer is buried there, I think. And like you said, Dickens yeah. and people like that. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. Corey, and you and I have talked about this question uh, that I'm going to give you here. And uh, so maybe this one's for Chris because we've had this conversation and I want to hear what his take on it is. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it's worth answering here. So let's talk a little bit about... Um, the hidden clues in the shepherds of Arcadia, right? There's, there's clues in there. They're hidden. And we add to that maybe something like Nolan's cross. that's left there for people to see. Uh, these are sort of, um, and a lot of theories are based on this, not just this one, right? There's a lot of other theories that are based on these little clues. The one that drives me the most crazy is the one about the William Shakespeare first folio, uh, because that is, you want to just, your brain explodes reading through some of those things that they come up with in that. Right. Uh, but so you have all these clues that point you towards this stuff being buried on Oak Island. And the question that everyone asks is the most popular question. Whenever I talk about a theory like this is why hide these things in plain sight? Wouldn't it be just much easier and certainly much more efficient to hide things by not doing any of this stuff, by not pointing people in this direction, right? By not leaving clues in a painting that everyone will see or something along those lines. I guess the first thing a lot of people have to get past is that. Why would somebody do that if they really wanted to keep it a secret where this stuff was? 
Um, from my view, I would say that uh, in the sort of esoteric world, secret societies and such, uh, yes, these breadcrumbs are left behind. Um, when you sort of get into these clubs and fraternities, uh, they they do not just uh, dump all any answers on you. What they do is plant a seed here and there, and it's up to you to sort of water that seed and uh, take care of it, let it grow. And uh, you have to do the work also. Yeah, it's not you don't join the Masons and okay, here's the big book of answers. <laughs> it's not anything like that. So it's uh, it's it's little things here and there, you know, in, in each degree. And I think, Chris, I was, Chris, I was really hoping you had the big book of answers for us that you can read from here today. I really thought once you said you were a Freemason at the top, I said, no, this is the guy we want to talk to. He knows all the secrets. We're discussing the book of answers today. <laughs> yes, yes, here we go. It's, uh, it's on Kindle. I'll forward it to you. Thank you. Thank so, you. Uh, <laughs> no problem. Uh, but that's how these things work. Uh, uh, the point is, I think, to guide you along the way. So you start investigating things. You start learning things that uh, probably the schools are not teaching. And you grow in that way. You gain this gnosis along the way. Part of the treasure hunt is just the knowledge you gain along the way. And I think part of their modus operandi is to leave these clues for those who want to see them, for those who are looking for them. And it's their way of sort of bringing enlightenment to, uh, to the world, which was one of the goals there. Um, so that would be the best answer I could give uh, to that question. Yeah, and I, I would like to, 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 to add to that. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> not only, I, I mean, you know, we're convinced that they, they left these, uh, these breadcrumbs there, but they were careful um you know i think most if not all of these would have been invisible at the time they were made for example mm -hmm. shepherds of arcadia all these paintings by poussin they were never intended you know to be put in a museum um uh, to be you know looked at by by thousands of people every day these were private commissions uh made for you know in this case uh, someone in the vatican uh, for his private quarters, so there would be a very small audience that would actually, um, you know, be be privy to this information. Uh, the same with the um, uh, one of the things we describe in the book uh, is how you know the gardens of Versailles, the 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 largest royal domain on the planet, you know, two thousand two hundred acres is laid out like a giant menorah, something uh, uh, we discussed on the Curse of Oak Island in season eight. Um, this is something no one would ever see. I mean, the, the first air balloon didn't appear until, uh, what was it, 1783, uh, which incidentally flew over Versailles. Um, uh, so it would have been a nice thing to add to the book. Uh, but that, was, that would have been the first time that actually someone would have seen this huge menorah on the ground from the air. So at the time, it was built by uh, first Louis the yeah, Thirteenth and then Louis the Louis the Fourteenth to be finished in in sixteen eighty five. At the time, no one would have seen it. No one would have known it. 
uh, uh, the paintings of Poussin would have been in private possession. Uh, the, the memorial for this English prime minister was in a private garden. No one would see it. Um, so it, it was, I guess, less obvious than you would think. So if you add up what Chris says about you know, leaving the breadcrumbs, but leaving them in a private space or hiding them in plain sights, um, you know, not being detectable by generally available technology at the time, then it, I guess it becomes uh, secure. I'd just like to add that uh, a lot of these paintings uh, by the masters, you know, and, and Botticelli comes to mind. They were created as talismans, as Corian said, these were privately commissioned works. And what they would do, uh, let's say there was a if it was a wedding gift or something and the, the painting was to be made, they would paint it under an auspicious time, right? The stars are right above. It's a sort of a good luck charm. And they would do it right. on that night and they would include these gods and goddesses. And by doing that, what they would sort of imbue it with, uh, you know, a bit of magic, a bit of uh, luck. It was, a, like I said, a talisman to kind of freeze a, a point in time and carry that energy. And uh, that was, it happened with a lot of these uh, masters, I think Poussin included. Guys, I'm not going to uh, keep me too much longer, but I, I just want to say this one last thing. Uh, for the longest time, I think one of the most frustrating things of Oak Island viewer, for Oak Island viewers is that we haven't been able to pinpoint a time frame. Every time somebody finds something that's unusual, it seems to come from another century, anywhere from the 11th century to the 18th century, right? It's all over the place. And 11 years later, we're still not even able to come up with a century where we think something has happened. And over the last year or so, I think, especially in um, circles of like Oak Island theorists and uh you know, people discussing this stuff seriously, not, not about the show, but about the, about the mystery itself, that is kind of turned on its head to the point where what people are now looking for, I think, is the theory that encompasses all of those centuries, because that is the thing that seems to be making the most sense now, is that not one thing happened, but maybe a whole series of things happened, and we don't know what that reason might be that that happened. I, I think you guys probably agree with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've always looked at it from that perspective. Um, and I, I guess this whole adventure started out by, you know, trying to combine all the datings, all the artifacts and, 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 and to make sense of it. Uh, and then, you know, to take a distance, uh, you know, as we said uh, at the start of the conversation, take, take some distance from the lore, look at all the things, uh, you know, we... we uh, uh, consider fact and then you know start to build the bit the bridge back from Europe and then all of a sudden you know given the distance and given the developments of uh, you know travel technology in the age of discovery uh, all these these datings and timings on the island start to make sense and and appear to be um, you know part of 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 the same of the same story of the same narrative and you know we've always said that um, of all these theories out there, it's very well possible that you know 75 percent of them uh, is 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 somewhere half right and all part of you know exactly of, of of a bigger story and i guess that's what we've tried to uh to document in the jerusalem files is that 
that big story that spans what is it two thousand years in three right. continents, uh, and which which you know gives you a a beautiful and you know in our in our opinion very logical and, and organic narrative that 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 leads to uh, Oak Island uh, uh, along the way, which is yeah, which is crazy and very cool. I think. Um... I mean, Ben Franklin makes an appearance in this, uh, you know, just so people understand, this isn't a book about what the Knights Templar did. This is a book about this whole thing that you're looking for. Uh, it's, it is, it's, it's impressive work, guys. You guys <laughs> really, really blew me away with some of the stuff that's in here. And, and I can't, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Um, the book again is called the Jerusalem files discover the astonishing secret journey of the menorah. I think guys, if you, if you agree with me, we did enough to sort of tease what it's about, but since it's not released yet, I didn't want to get too far into the nuts and bolts of it. Um, is there, if there's anything else you guys want to add to what we've discussed for people thinking about, uh, you know, I mean, you could pre-order it now. That's one thing I want you to know. Uh, and you could get it uh, anywhere now. So, so start doing that, guys. You're going to be blown away. But is there anything I missed? Anything that you want to add here without, uh, uh, you know, opening that at question too much for you? But one one thing I want to add is that, um, and you you sort of touched on that uh, uh, there just yet. I mean, it's it's a very American book. Yeah, it's it's turned out to be much more of an American book than I had imagined, and uh, one. Of the, the the beautiful ironies, you know, in 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 our history is that um, you know France financed the American Revolution, and by financing the American Revolution, you know, the French king bankrupted himself, leading yeah. to the French Revolution, eventually costing him his head and his menorah that had to be shipped to North America. Exactly at the time that Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin were in Paris, and George Washington was uh, about to build his new capital in North America, um, leading to basically not not only do we have a menorah in the gardens of Versailles, we have a mirrored menorah in the street plan of Washington D.C. pointing back at it. It's mm-hmm. that, that there's such a beautiful symmetry. Here and you know, I, I, I won't make the statement that we're rewriting history, but I think we're refining, um, you know, the history around the birth of uh, you know modern North America to some extent. I like to think you know we, we're adding just a little speck to that, um, and and uh, I hope that will be you know worth reading for uh, for your listeners. Well said. You're uncovering things, I think is the way I would put it. I, I don't think you're making it up or anything. You know, you clearly document all of it. And I didn't want to go through the whole part about Washington, D.C. and Ben Franklin and, and all that. I wanted to leave that for the surprise. But you did it, Corey. And so now you guys know uh, what we're getting into here. This is a great book. Go out and get it if you... Uh, and if, people can check it. In the books, you have all the sources, yep, you have yep. all the timelines. You can check everything for yourself. You can check every image on uh, on Google Earth where you want. You can check uh, uh, the sources, the texts. Uh, the conclusions are ours, and we share them with you. The underlying facts are the facts, and uh, uh, we present them to the reader to make their own conclusions. Yes. Thank you guys for joining us. Yep. 
Thank you, Dave. Thanks, Dave. That was awesome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Hope to do it again.